What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show. So today's golden nuggets are going to be coming from a book by psychologist Tomas Camaro Pramusic. I have to think about that name for a second. Anyways, I love that name. He's from Argentina, and he's a psychologist, and he wrote a book called Confidence, Overcoming Low Self-Esteem, Insecurity, and Self-Doubt. Now, when people first read this book, if you go to look at the comments, people don't like this book very much. And why? They don't like it because he challenges a lot of these ideas that we have taken as gospel truth. Ideas that you can never have too much confidence. You can never have too much optimism. Or that we're all better than average. And he challenges so many of these concepts and tries to bring us back to center. And because he does that, a lot of people don't like this book. But I absolutely love this book because he does provide us with a different perspective. And any book that gives us a different perspective, want to read that book. So in any case, for today's book, we're talking about confidence and having too much of it. So let's get into this one. First, let's introduce Tomas to you, and then we'll break into the golden nuggets. Before we kick this off, there have been a number of requests to have you on the show and requests for different reasons. This one got on my radar because people either love this book or they hate this book. Why are we seeing such a polar opposite amount of people here who both like it and love it. In your experience, why is that? I think it's just that confidence is a very polarizing topic. Um, Mostly or historically, um, we have seen it as something very positive. And I think if you look at the self-help industry, it's mostly an industry whose sole or predominant narrative is to try to boost people's egos and self-esteems, you know? So I think uh, with that comes the assumption that confidence must be a good thing. And the more you have it, the better off you are. Having said that, I also think that in the last 10 years, we've woken up to the reality that when people have too much of it, too much confidence, and they turn up to be global leaders or be in a position of power, status, and influence, um, what might be advantageous for them or beneficial for them might actually come uh, at the detriment of everyone else. And, you know, so you read the book, so you understand that the message is not that confidence is a bad thing, that, but that the right amount is the right amount and not too much of it. That ideally right. you should have as much confidence as you need in order to be aware of your limitations and know what you don't know. That's right. And we'll get into that a little bit more. The imagery that I had reading the book was of a seesaw. And you have on one side, and I'm going to kind of spoil a little bit for people who haven't read it, but that's okay. You have on one side, you have confidence. On the other side, you have competence. And when your confidence is too high and your competence is too low, certain issues will arise and vice versa. For people who have read the book, there have been a lot of folks who've reached out to me and said, I had a tough time getting through the first chapter. And I asked, why? Why why did you have a tough time? Because they said that, well, Tomas is strongly against confidence. He believes that we don't need confidence and that confidence is um, is downplayed so much so that it, 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 it almost hurts me to finish reading it. What do you say to those people who are almost violently opposing this opinion when they first read the chapter and, and they struggle to get through it? What do you say to those people out there? I mean, if I could make them finish the book, that would be my ask because I think a lot of the initial thoughts or arguments might seem controversial to begin with, but then they are 
uh, decoded or unpacked in the other chapters. You know, I also think, by the way, if you're not challenging your preconceptions and you're not willing to understand or accept the fact that some of your preconceptions might be misconceptions, then you shouldn't read a book to begin with. You should only, you know, you can stay within your filter bubble and keep liking, retweeting or sharing the comments of those who think like you, you know? So, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, I'm also grateful that some people might have gotten the book um, and gone as far as one chapter feeling uncomfortable about what's written or disagreeing with it. And I think if, despite that, they manage to finish the book, it shows that they're very open-minded and we need more open-minded people in the world for sure. All right, so let's crack in a golden nugget number one. Golden nugget number one says that we have too much confidence today. Now, why is that? Why do we have too much confidence? Well, we're surrounded by information, whether it be from social media, from Google, from YouTube, whatever. We have so much information at our disposal today that the minute we read a couple articles, we hear a couple podcasts, we watch a couple videos, we feel like we got it all figured out. And in fact, I would argue that we really don't. And myself included, I have to catch myself on this too. So don't feel bad about this. But Golden Nugget number one talks about having too much confidence and it's really important for you to understand why that is. So let's crack into this one. That is one of the key takeaways for me. And, and I love that. And I, I'm not getting too ahead of myself, but we will talk about this again later on. It's this idea of having such high levels of confidence that we shut off anything that disagrees with our beliefs. We shut off anything that opposes something that we believe. And we are very adamant in our opinions. We are very strong. We have strong conviction in them. And sometimes that conviction comes from reading one article, reading a handful of tweets, reading a comment or watching a video on, on Instagram. And it's that kind of culture that is getting us into trouble where we have a lot of delusion. We have a lot of ignorance. And I believe this book is an antidote to a lot of that. Would you agree or disagree? Is that kind of a half thought or, or what are your thoughts? That certainly was my intention. You know, I, I know that in for some people that was a message or that's the impact or the effect. And for, for others, you know, um, they can uh, get too fixated on certain components to see them. But I think your interpretation is at least aligned with what I had in mind. Mm. And, you know, perhaps um, one good starting point for people to understand whether they have read the book or not is is this counterintuitive research finding that contrary to what most people think and contrary to popular belief, confidence, how good you think you are at something and competence, how good you actually are at something are very weakly correlated. We know from even the best studies that the correlation is rarely higher than 0.3. That means that there's 9% overlap between the two. So if you imagine two circles in a Venn diagram, the overlap is just 9%. So in 9% of the population, confidence aligns with competence, which means that most of the time you're going to have to choose between one or the other. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I would rather have a dentist, a heart surgeon, a pilot, a financial advisor who is competent rather mm. than confident. And, you know, I love charisma, sense of humor, bravado and assertiveness, but it kind of helps if people actually know what they're saying and know what they're talking about. And that basically is what the book is about. That's right. And we'll get into that again in a little bit here, but I want to break into golden nugget number one to provide some structure for people that who maybe haven't read the book or people who have read the book 
and they want to understand a little bit more about it. And one of the top questions that I have on it is golden nugget number one, why is confidence downplayed so much when people value having high confidence? Why is it important that we value having lower confidence? Mostly because the majority of people in the world have too much of it. And because the right amount of confidence is that which aligns with your actual competence. Um, simple examples, you know, if I'm about to cross a busy junction, Five Avenue, you know, it's not so busy now because of the COVID situation, but uh, uh, for most of the past 50, 60 years, it was very busy. And imagine that I think that I can cross and the traffic light is about to change. And actually, I overestimate my ability to get to the other side. I'm probably going to be hit by a car. You know, mm -hmm. uh, equally, if you think you have great musical talent and you're a great singer, uh, you might put yourself forward for an audition. Why are shows like America's Got Talent or Canada's Got Talent or The X Factor so successful mm -hmm. and popular? Because when people stand up and we can see that in their own minds, they are like Pavarotti, but when they open their <laughs> mouths, they are like a strangled cat. We laugh because we can see how ridiculous a surplus of confidence is, you know? So we have to start with this idea that the right amount is one that actually helps you understand what you know and what you don't know so that you can work to close the gap and develop some competence. And we also know that the majority of people suffer from too much confidence. The optimism bias is pervasive. You can look up work by my colleague at UCL, Tali Sharot. She's a very good TED talk on this as well, showing that the majority of people are overly optimistic about how long they will live, how healthy they might be, whether they're going to stay in happy relationships, be promoted, get a bonus. And the main lesson from the whole behavioral economics movement, Daniel Kahneman, Tversky and others, is that overconfidence is the pervasive flaw and bias that we have as humans when we estimate things. So if we accept the fact that too much confidence is bad and most of us have too much confidence, then you have to understand that a less confident world would be a better world. And especially if you think about this from a leadership perspective, I think the majority of organizations and political institutions would improve the quality of their leaders if they could work on lowering their leaders' confidence, not increasing it. When people listen to that and the the opinions that I hear from folks who are reading that, when you say that, I know uh, people have a very strong opposition to that. And they say, how can having lower confidence be a positive thing? And we'll talk about that next. But the one behavioral um, outcome from that is that with lower confidence, you might be less willing to argue for a specific opinion that you don't have a lot of background about. You might listen more. It'll increase your humility and it'll force you to be very knowledgeable in specific areas. But today that's not the case. Today we're knowledgeable about everything and we have knowledge about everything and we have opinions about everything. And in that case, there is overconfidence running rampant in our world. And it just, you, all you have to do is go on Facebook, go to the comment sections, and you'll see the amount of people who are so confident in their opinions. But for people who know better, you sit down and you say, wow, that person is missing a lot in their argument and they have a lot more to learn. 
one of the biggest takeaways I want people to walk away from with this book is it really doubles down on the importance of niching, of specializing, of becoming an expert in something. And you know what? Focus on increasing your competence in that. And everything else, it's okay to listen. It's okay to not have an answer. It's okay to say, my intuition tells me rather than what I know to be true. We're going to get ourselves into a lot of trouble and we have too much conflict. We have too much arrogance as a result of our overconfidence today. And that core belief from this book is why I love it so much because it challenges us. And in a world where it doesn't take long to find anything, it's called YouTube. It's called Google. You read one or two articles and all of a sudden you're an expert at something. And you have this, this idea that once I know just a little bit, I can talk competently about it. It's not true. And that's what I believe you're trying to get at with this book is to increase your competence more than just come at it with blind confidence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's nicely put. And I think, you know, um, always wrong, but never in doubt is mm -hmm. very much how you could summarize some of the, some of the phenomena you described. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there is a wonderful quote by the French philosopher and encyclopedist uh, Voltaire, uh, in one of his books, I think Candide, that says something along the lines of doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And, you know, so we have to understand that uh, there are actually uh, a lot of benefits in being aware of your limitations and even questioning yourself, particularly in an age where uh, the illusion of certainty is, is easy to have. So now that we know a little bit more about the dangers of having too much confidence, again, not to say that having confidence is a bad thing, but it's important for us to come back to center and realize that we don't know it all. And in fact, we know very little. So let's keep our minds open to new possibilities, new knowledge, new perspectives, and stop trying to figure everything out and saying, and stop trying to say that we know everything or that we have all the answers or that we know something to be absolutely true because we really don't. So now let's kick into golden nugget number two which talks all about the better than average bias. Let me ask you a couple questions. Would you consider yourself better than average when it comes to driving? Would you consider yourself better than average when it comes to happiness, your career, your relationships? Would you consider yourself better than average in a number of areas? And the answer to a lot of that is yes. Most people believe they are better than average, which statistically is impossible. So knowing that provides us with a little bit more perspective and understanding, and Tomas is gonna go into more detail into that. But for golden nugget number two, I'd love for you to explain to us what the better than average bias is all about. The better than average bias is this idea that most people have that they are better than average. So a lot of studies have asked people, for example, questions, simple questions such as, do you think you're a better, better driver than the average person? Do you think you're a better uh, employee than the average person? Do you think your sense of humor is better than average? Do you think your intelligence is higher than average? And so on. So it's been done with virtually every domain of competence. And 
study after study, domain after domain, you find that something uh, between like 75 and 85% of respondents see themselves as being better than average, which of course is statistically impossible because <laughs> all these things are normally distributed, which means that the vast majority of us, 66% of us are very close to average or in simple terms, average. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it's interesting how narcissistic culture our culture has become mm-hmm. that if you tell someone that they're average is almost a bigger insult than to tell them that they're um you know weird right. odd or abnormal you know because we <laughs> fear the average i mean i think it comes from the consumer society and you know they need to feel special so mm-hmm. you know the message here in the narrative is like you're special just like everyone else and my favorite studies have actually told people that there is this bias and that 80 percent of people think they're better than average only in fact that's not possible statistically possible and then people say oh wow i didn't know about them and then the studies ask those same individuals do you think this bias the better than average bias applies to you and 80% of people say, no, <laughs> it's not me, you know? <laughs> so this is called bias blindness. And it's being blind to the fact that your own thoughts or your, the, your own way of evaluating yourself uh, is biased. I love that because it's going to force every single one of you listening to this, watching this, to look at the areas in your life which you think you are above average in. And it forced me to take a look at the areas in my life. And as I sat there and read it and I listened to it again on audiobook and I sat there and thought about what are the areas in my life that I believe the areas that you were giving us examples of, like um, driving and writing and singing and what have you, what do I think my, my initial answer to that would be? I'm above average in this, I'm above, above average in that. And then as I sit and think about it, I'm like, well, why do I think that? And is that actually true? And your book forces us to be based on data, scientific data, scientific studies to look at that and say, wow, I think I'm one of those people. This book helps to raise your awareness to say, in what areas am I average? And in what areas do I want to be above average? What do I need to do to increase my intelligence or to increase my level of skill in a certain area? And I think, again, it'll help to increase humility across the board when you can say, hey, I'm below average in a certain area and I'm average in this area. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. In fact, I'd argue it's a good thing. To know thyself is power. that we have this better than average bias, it's important for us to understand where in our lives we might think that we are better than average. And what it is is a nice little dose of reality to say, hey, you might not be as good as you think you are, which is a good thing to think because it'll force you to have some humility in certain areas and want you to improve in others. So now let's get into gold nugget number three, which talks all about the importance of pessimism. Now I'll tell you, for myself, I always thought pessimism was a bad thing, and I wanted to keep pessimism far away from me. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But now my mind has been changed, and I see the value of having pessimistic beliefs. And you might say, come on, Ryan, isn't that a part of your purpose to live an optimistic life? Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean that you can't use pessimism strategically to help you reduce risk in life. 
And I think today we've gone overboard. We deny the value of pessimism. And then there's others who say that pessimism is really important. And neither are correct. We're right in the middle. The answer is yes and no. Pessimism is both important and it's dangerous, and both optimism is important and dangerous as well. So we need to understand how to use them, and Tomas gives us a little bit more information on that. So let's crack into this one. So I'd love to understand from you now, going into Goldenung number three, this was probably the number two, the, the second biggest uh, uh, complaint or criticism of the book, is that you seem to value pessimism over optimism. Why is that? Well, I think... You know, we've glorified and celebrated blind optimism for so long now, especially Mm -hmm. in the West, Mm -hmm. that uh, we've gone overboard, you know, and I think even good things turn into bad things when exacerbated. And, you know, I think, for example, thinking that um, things will get better, you know, when I wrote the book, the most recent crisis had been the 2008 financial crisis. So it was easy to pick examples that were related to the economy, you know? So for example, if I think that I can pay off a mortgage, even though I have just 1% of the deposit and by any rational or objective calculation, only a miracle in house prices increase would enable me to have some equity in my house. uh, And I get a mortgage and I, you know, go into debt, that's probably not a very good, If I think that um, despite the statistics out there of how damaging um, cigarette smoking is, lung cancer can't happen to me because in any any area where success and failure um, or competence can be objectively defined, you realize that there's very little value in being overly optimistic. Because being overly optimistic at best can persuade other people that you're good or that you're healthy or that, you know, you're lucky, maybe. And let's face it, this counts for a lot in relationship success and in work with your colleagues. But if what we mean is actual areas where risk and success and failure can be quantified, too much optimism, which is the norm, is uh, is quite problematic, you know? So if you think about pessimism, including in some of the cases that we often uh, sanction or um, ostracize or um, condemn, such as imposter syndrome, you know, this idea that um, it's, it's a very, very horrible and neurotic kind of anxious state of affairs when you question yourself and you think, you're underprepared for a presentation and you know that uh, people aren't going to like your page or that you're underqualified for this, et cetera. I mean, granted, those are not pleasant states of mind to uh, have or be in, but you can leverage them and turn them into a positive, you know? So I think mm-hmm. we have lost, at least culturally, the ability to understand that it is quite advantageous to know uh, when something is potentially risky, dangerous, and, you know, that famous old book now, Only the Paranoid Will Survive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm trying to get to. And of course, in the last year, we can apply exactly the same 
theory or model to understanding uh, how people dealt with the pandemic. You know, uh, there are still people today who are COVID-19 deniers and who think this is a hoax, etc. In the early days, it was very easy to fall into this category. And it was probably those who were very pessimistic who said, wow, I should prepare for this and I should take care of myself and my family. Well, those are probably people who didn't get sick or at least managed the pandemic better. There was a study, by the way, published just two weeks ago showing how people with grandiose narcissism, so those who have a general tendency to be um, entitled and very arrogant and also overly optimistic about their talents, uh, see themselves and saw themselves as immune to COVID throughout this <laughs> pandemic, you know? So you can actually predict behaviors. Now, of course, when everything is going uh, really well and things are fine, you might argue that it's quite a torturing position to be if you're constantly pessimistic, but actually even that's precisely when you're lucky to have your guard down if you're naturally optimistic, you know? Mm. Um, and I think the point that I tried to make in that chapter is that it's not easy to change uh, from being a natural pessimist, as I am, to being a natural optimist, as a lot mm -hmm. of people are. So we shouldn't point the finger at people who are pessimistic and blame them because they can't see life through rose-tinted glasses or be very happy because all you're going to create is guilt and, you know, annoyance because they can't right. become someone else. That's right. I, I love that you just said that because that was going to be one of my questions was to ask, are you naturally more pessimistic or optimistic? Um, a good colleague of mine out of uh, UPenn, uh, Mar Marty Seligman, he has done a tremendous amount of work on uh, the idea of optimism and learned optimism now. And he himself is a very, very strong pessimist. And he continues to do a great deal of research uh, at UPenn with um, trying to increase optimism. And for him, he says, I have to work to increase my optimism. Now, it's important to also mention that Tomas is not saying that optimism is bad. He led this by saying blind optimism. We talk a lot about the importance of, of, of having too much confidence, having too much optimism, because it leads to delusion. And I know that when I've even told people that at first, they've said, no, no, it doesn't lead to delusion. And it's just this blind acceptance that you can never have too much of these things, but you can. And he's given you some examples where that has been the case. There have been people in my life where having too much optimism and too much confidence led to ha being underprepared, whether it be for a competition, whether it be for an interview, whether it be for a pitch meeting, and they wanted to rely on their, their bravado, their, their ability to sway a room. It wasn't enough. Yes. Will, will it work sometimes? Of course it will. Of course it will. We're not saying it never will, but you're better off being more prepared. And so in this conversation about pessimism and optimism, there's importance to be closer to center, which is to be the realistic optimist. Don't just be blindly optimistic about your future and about how things are. No, look at reality as it is. The rosy colored sunglasses that everyone says are so valuable. Uh, I myself am a natural optimist, but I've also realized how that that inherent optimism inside of me has gotten me into trouble. And so I need to come closer back to center in order to see things as they are and then have a, a more realistic look 
at what it looks like. And that way I can plan for it. A good example of this is the book, um, A Man's Search for Meaning, where Victor Frankl, where- Exactly. In, I was thinking about exactly the same example. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, such, it's such a great example where in the, uh, the Nazi concentration camps, people were um, saying, oh, you know, we're going to get out on this day in December and it's going to happen and we're going to get out. And I know it. I just know it. And Victor Frankl would sit and he'd observe and see what happens when that day came and went. What happened to them? They lost hope. That blind optimism that they have based on what? What, what? what was it based off? Where did that come from? How did you come to that date? Why did you believe that date was the one that you were going to come and be saved? And then when it passed by, he saw their hope decline. He saw their resilience decline. He saw everything decline. And eventually some of them even died or committed suicide because they, they lost all hope. And that's the dangers of blind optimism and where it can lead you. And I, I know you wanted to, to bring something in there. I don't know if you wanted to interject there. Yeah, absolutely. And first, you know, you mentioned Marty Seligman, uh, who has done great work, of course. And it's it's actually a great example because when he kickstarted the positive, what was then, what then became known as the positive psychology revolution, you know, him and his colleagues made a very valid point that um, in the previous decades, um, 90% of psychologists, or at least renowned psychologists, which were most, mostly psychotherapists, mm -hmm. were focused on studying the problems, disorders, abnormalities, and misfortunes mm -hmm. that maybe apply to 10% of the people, you know? So, right. so positive psychology emerged as a study of what was the norm and what was what normal in a sort of a re-valoration uh, or, or a way to revindicate um, positive emotions, whether it's flow, creativity, etc. Mm -hmm. And of course, his concept of learn helplessness and then resilience were attempts to help people develop positive coping strategies, which again, you can frame within the positive psychology kind of movement or paradigm. Now, right. fast forward 30 or 40 years, and I think we've gone overboard in the other direction, because mm -hmm. if you want to study or look at the mainstream literature on leadership, for example, you would easily think, or you would be easily fooled to think that the majority of leaders must be transformational, inspirational, engaging, amazing. And then if you open the newspapers in any country at any point, <laughs> you're like, hold on, why aren't these guys here? You know, so, which is why we're now seeing a little bit of a shift towards understanding the dark side, et cetera. But yeah, Viktor Frankl is a great example in these critical circumstances. If you want to build resilience, you need to cling to meaning and positivity. Um, and, you know, yeah, the other thought that uh, um, you evoked was this idea that still today we divide people between optimists or we called realists mostly depressive realists, mm. you know, because we talk <laughs> about depressive realism as like, again, you know, it's a lot more uncomfortable to try to come to terms with reality, especially when things are tough. But I would argue it's a, it's a requirement or prerequisite to actually cope with the issues. And ultimately, I think that the most important thing is that you, because you might never actually get a proper accurate take on reality or have an accurate reading, but what will definitely help you is to know what your specific biases or tendencies are right so when you said i know i'm an optimist whatever well that means that you can probably because you are self-aware 
calibrate or tweak a little bit your, you know, so if you go on a date and no one shows up or you apply for a job and you really think you're going to get it or, you know, you think you're going to get promoted, you can pause and say, but you know what, I'm actually quite optimistic. So maybe I should prepare for the negative. And it's the same for me. You know, I always, I always think about the worst case scenario and I know I'm very pessimistic and there are moments that I can't sleep because of that. But then I remind myself that maybe I'm just very harsh in my readings of realities, you know? So that's ultimately what we want everyone to be more self-aware and that involves understanding in what specific ways you are biased. of having pessimism, using pessimism to your advantage. It's something that I will continue to use and I hope you will as well because it's a powerful tool for us to gain some better perspective and increase our awareness. But now we kick into golden nugget number four which talks all about having an upside from the downside. This is something that's very, very difficult to discuss. It's very triggering for a lot of individuals. When you have anxiety, strong distress, depression, we might think that there's nothing good about that. And trust me, when I've been there in those dark places, it's very hard for anybody to tell me that there's anything good that's gonna come from this. Because it makes you feel so bad inside. Feelings of hopelessness and having no hope and seeing no possibility for the future. There's nothing to be excited about, nothing to anticipate. It's a bad place to be. But there is an upside to that. And a part of my work is to help you in understanding what that upside is. So I really hope this doesn't trigger a lot of you. And I hope that you're able to listen to this and maybe learn something from this. But it's something that I myself am gonna talk a lot more about and try to raise some awareness to. The importance of listening, learning from anxiety, from distress, depression, and other negative emotions. So let's get into this one. That's right. As you're getting, as we're moving our way through this interview, I'm hoping that people are now warming up to this book and your work because this conversation that we're having, it's, it's, it's very hard to disagree. You, you, people out there, you, you might be disagreeing with it. That's okay. But it all comes down to increasing our self-awareness. And that's a big part about what this book is about. And the other golden nugget that I want to talk about, it's the, the third most discussed thing uh, or, or your thing that I faced with it with an email and you can see it on the forums and what have you. But people, gold nugget number three or four, it says that the there is an, always an upside to the downside. It's a book by Todd Cashton, the, the upside of your, your downside. And he talks about the upside of things that we don't necessarily think there's an upside to. Anger, psychopathy even, anxiety, depression. And when you call that out in the book saying that there is an evolutionary advantage to anxiety and depression. Immediately, people just shut the book. What is he talking about? He's crazy. How dare he say that? It's offensive to me and it's offensive to people with anxiety and depression. And I would love for you to talk to that and talk to those people who were very offended by the fact that you're saying there is an upside to anxiety and depression. Because I'll be quick and interject real fast, but there is. There truly is. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, Todd, 
again, big fan of his work, great research. And, you know, he's written a lot about this as well. Evolutionary psychology is a really interesting paradigm, right? Because when something is quite prevalent and it affects or impacts a lot of people, and that would include things like um, anxiety disorders or depression or affective disorders, and, and, and it keeps on happening, you know, generation after generation, there has to be a purpose, even if, if its origins are now out of sync or a mismatch, even if in the old days it was something adaptive and today it's mismatched with um, contextual or environmental challenges. And of course, it's not difficult to understand what the benefits are of things like anxiety or depression or disorders that involve um, you know, a low self-esteem or having low confidence. Um, typically, for example, if you are depressed because you lost your job or your partner breaks up with you or, you know, bad things happen, you know, misfortunes, um, you're mostly depressed because you feel that you are worthless and that you're not as good as you were. You blame yourself, you're guilty, you feel responsibilities. And that's really an attempt from an evolutionary perspective to actually get better to gain competence, to do, it's, it's your ego, if you like, or your consciousness telling you, hey, you should feel bad about this because you could have avoided it in this way or that way. Now, of course, the problem is that a lot of those times, a lot of these times, the inner voice that you have that tells you this is being brutally critical. Mm -hmm. And if you don't learn to silence it or reframe your interpretation of reality, uh, you might end up being clinically or pathologically insecure, anxious, and inhibited. To be sure, we don't want that. I mean, that's something that psychotherapy addresses. And that's why in those instances when you your level of um, guilt or anxiety or um, you know low confidence is out of touch with reality, you need to work on elevating it. But then there's a lot of other scenarios or possibilities where, you know, just look at where we are today. At least in America, 30% of people deal with any negative emotion like anxiety or even concern or worry with medication, you know? Right. So we're killing the symptoms that are trying to tell us something because we don't want to deal with that. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we become chronically self-medicated -medica uh, prescription drug users and by the way, you know, that's just prescription drugs, but you can add uh, right. other substances, you know, illegal drugs or mm -hmm. uh, drinking, etc. because we mm -hmm. cannot come to terms with uh, potential failures or, you know, basically the common reaction here tells you that um, we want a quick fix mm -hmm. and it's uncomfortable for us to face any wound to our self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And actually, in many instances, it will be a lot healthier to deal with it and understand that, you know, there's something we can do to get better. And, you know, we're not talking about paralyzing guilt or remorse, mm -hmm. but it would be at least healthier to try to deal with it in a psychological way. And that's what I'm trying that's to right. argue, you know. Um, so I think, you know, if all people understand is that there are better ways of confronting these issues than quickly taking a pill or a drug. Uh, that's good enough for me because, um, and then of course, it is very important to understand the biological, environmental, psychological basis and reasons for depression. 
Um, there's also some interesting cases that I talk about in the book. For example, if you have so much confidence and entitlement that you are narcissistic, right? And that you think you're as good as your mom told you when you were little and you think the rest of the world thinks as positively uh, of you as your mom did, uh, at some point you might encounter uh, negative feedback or unexpected kind of uh, failures in your life. And mm -hmm. typically when you get to that point, you have two options. You either become depressed and anxious and upset because uh, things weren't as good as you thought. And that's the best case scenario mm -hmm. because then you can actually recalibrate and adjust or tweak your self-esteem and work to get better and avoid failure next time. Mm -hmm. Or you become totally psychotic and distort reality to kind of continue with that heroic story about yourself that you keep telling yourself. And if you are there, if you're at that level, it's certainly worse, you know. So I think mm -hmm. there's, there's always, it's not just that there is an upside to these, um, you know, downside situations, but actually a lot of the times the alternatives are much worse. We have this natural tendency to want to feel good. We want to feel good immediately. I don't like this pain. Tomas, I don't like the pain that I'm feeling. What do I do? Well, you know, we can get rid of it. And how do I get rid of it as fast as possible? Because I don't like to feel this way. Sometimes, excuse my language, you have to sit in it. You have to sit in it and feel it. You have to sit and think and understand it. Myself going through very difficult times, some of the toughest times of my life came, came the setups that helped me propel to become a better person, a better community member, a better professional. And it was in those moments of, guilt, shame, anxiety, depression, distress that actually helped me the most. And I know that when people listen to this and they read your book and they see that, and if they are in pain, I understand and, and I empathize, and as I'm sure you do as well, that people, they're going to react that way. It's almost like having an open cut and somebody coming by and just rubbing it really hard. Like you're going to react immediately to that. And I get that. And, and I apologize that that is your reaction, but this is in no way Thomas saying this or, or, or me trying to say that what you're doing is wrong. We're just saying that there is a different perspective that is important to have when it comes to these emotions. Right, so in Golden Nugget number four, we talk about something that's very difficult to talk about. The upside to anxiety, to negative emotions. And these things are debilitating. Trust me, I know. But the more we become comfortable with understanding it, or the more we understand different perspective, the more we can understand it, the better we'll be able to leverage it, to use it to our advantage. And I'm telling you, it is possible no matter how hard or no matter how solid that belief is, there's nothing good from it. There absolutely is. I will tell you that from firsthand experience. In our last golden nugget, we're gonna talk about the importance of listening to others. Because we've often heard that we shouldn't necessarily pay attention to what others think. And that the only thing that matters is our own opinion. So Tomas provides us with another alternative perspective as he so often does. Man, this poor guy, he's just getting beat up all the time on the comments. And I feel for him, but I appreciate him because He's trying to bring some balance back to perhaps an overly optimistic point of view or a point of view that's just weighing too far on one side. He's trying to bring the pendulum back to center in a few areas. And this is one of them where we've learned that we shouldn't listen to other people and we should only listen to ourselves. In this golden nugget, he tells you why that's dangerous to only listen to yourself and why we should consider the perspective of other people. 
let's get into this one. In the last golden nugget here, my friend, I would love for you to help us understand why we should care about what other people think about us. Because we're told so often that, hey, don't worry about what other people think about you. Other people's opinions of you shouldn't matter. But you in the book say that it actually does matter. Why is that? It's just a basic uh, ingredient or component of um, pro-social behavior, living in the company of others and being part of a civilized society. You know, Um, if you think that ignoring other people's views of you and behaving in the most unfiltered and uncensored way um, is pro-social in any way, you're just confused. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, that would make you a very self-centered, um, asocial or even anti-social individual. I think mm-hmm. uh, there is a trap when we listen to um, suggestions such as don't worry about what other people think of you, be authentic, uh, oh, mm-hmm. you're as good as you think you are, or if you think you're great, you are. Um, mm-hmm. Because actually... From, a, from an other-centric perspective, I think what we're seeking is to see you for who you really are. And I would like to know that I'm dealing with an authentic version of you and that you're not trying to deceive me, right? Having said that, and I think the best author here, if you read the work from the 1950s, 1960s, Erwin Goffman, the self-presentation of, uh, the presentation of the self in social environments, nails it, basically. Every, so first of all, interaction is where the action is. And secondly, every high stakes or relevant instance where we interact with others, whether it's in Zoom or in person, by the way, uh, comes with a specific social etiquette, comes with certain norms and certain uh, rules for interactions, some formal, some informal. And if you just ignore them, and you think that you can act in whatever way you feel, you're just going to struggle. You know, I'm just thinking about the number of people who perhaps um, went to their first job interview and listened to this, just be yourself. Don't worry about Mm -hmm. what people think of you. I mean, I'm guessing 90% of them didn't get the job offer the next day. Mm -hmm. And as I always say, you know, uh, the real you is someone who maybe four or five people in the world have learned to tolerate or maybe even love, you know, as in the unfiltered, uh, uncensored, totally spontaneous and impulsive version of you. I think no more than four or five people, which is why, by the way, when we meet for Christmas or Thanksgiving or spend too long in lockdown with our relatives, (laughs) things start getting very rowdy and very problematic because we don't make an effort to manage ourselves and our reputation there. So, you know, now that doesn't mean that you should not think for yourself or not uh, have a sense of what's good and what's wrong, or that when no one is watching, you should behave like an immoral crook or something. Uh, You should also not violate your core values or be a fraud. But just like you will realize when you travel from your country to another culture, once that is possible again, uh, any situation, if you, if you want to interact effectively with others and deal with other people and influence them and actually make a good impression on them, you have to understand how they see you and you have to 
uh, in a way, be quite populist in the way you behave. Now, again, if you're so shamelessly fake and that you're sucking up to me and you're overly polite and that you're lying to me, there is a price that you will pay for that as well. You know, right. so I think people want to think that you're authentic, but that type of authenticity requires a lot of dedication and it's very rehearsed, if you, if you, mm. if you see what I mean. And then, of course, you know, if being authentic, even authentic to your values means being Saddam Hussein or, you know, Stalin or Lenin, I'd rather you are not authentic and you repress every instance of your behavior because um, when we talk about leaders, what we want is not that they are authentic, but that they are effective and have a good impact on others, you know. This entire book is about balance. You've you've mentioned it before. I've used the example of the seesaw. You've talked about the pendulum. The pendulum has swung too far in a specific direction where we say we don't care about what other people think about us. It's only about what you think. You can never have too much optimism. You can never have too much confidence. Anxiety and depression, there is nothing good about that. And when you have this black and white, white kind of thinking, thinking, it really confuses things. And you really need to have a more balanced perspective. And that's why I love this book. And I think this book is highly underrated. And I would highly recommend a lot of you get out there, pick it up. If you've already picked it up and you started to read it and you put it away, I would argue you should pick it back up again and give it a read, finish it off. And maybe, just maybe this conversation will help you approach it with maybe more of an open mind. Right, that's this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show. So I just want to say thank you to every single one of you for tuning in this week. And I know that this book can challenge you and make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might even make you angry. I know that a lot of aspects of this book might be triggering to you. So the fact that you even were able to sit through this episode, I appreciate that. And that's why I love this book. I love the fact that Tomas had the courage to put a book out like this, to challenge a lot of our preconceived notions about how we live life, the certain beliefs that we hold to be true. And I really respect him because he did put together a really great book that was backed up by some very good research. And I know that if you go online, you read a lot of the comments, they're not going to be very favorable. They're not going to be all that positive. But I will argue that there is a lot of good that we can take from this book. Now, do you have to agree with everything? No. But if there's something here that can challenge a belief that you have to make you see a different perspective that will make you more self-aware, I think that's a victory. In any case, if you want to get out there, pick up this book. It's a great read. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please let me know. Throw me a text message, 1-917-540-8169. Just let me know what you thought about this podcast. I enjoyed doing this one, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. But in any case, my friends, I hope you have yourselves a great week, and I will catch you back here next week on the Cut the Crap Show. Have a good one, everybody. 